Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're really pleased you've been able to join us for tonight's program. So if you have this concept that becoming a Christian was the, you know, tick that box, now I'm going to move on and, you know, what else is there in life? Take that one back to the shop. Get your money back because that's not it. That's not the real deal. How different would your life be if you got to spend 24 hours in heaven with God? I suspect it might change your perspective on life and your troubles. You may well be surprised at how forgiving and relentless God is. Tonight is the second in a four-part series on redemption where we discover that God has a ridiculous, lavish, excessive, almost scandalous love for those he redeems. To further explore the wonder of redemption, let's join Dr. Corbett now. What I want to do is continue to talk about this topic of redemption and this um, hand in the key with the key in it, I hope in a moment is going to become more meaningful to you as we look at this subject, the subject of redemption. And it's subtitled because we can define redemption in a number of ways and it's not a particularly religious word, but it's rich for us as Christians. If you can't answer this question what does the word redemption mean probably well I hope today you can I hope you can give a very quick succinct answer and for me it's kind of like the picture of how you set your pantry up in our pantry we have and Ruby will, will verify this she'll back me up we have a, a pantry that you can open up and it opens up in full view of the dining table essentially and you might think, oh, look at that food. Yes, and, that, and, and if you do, uh, Kim, who's out of the room now, which is why I'm saying this, is, uh, <coughs> is going to be very pleased. And as Ruby will verify, back me up here, Ruby, if we dare take anything in that pantry, it's, is it instant death or... It, you do not dare. You do not dare. So the question that Ruby and I often have is, what is there to eat? And we go open the can. oh, there's that. Don't touch that! We're going to completely change tact and no one mentions this when Kim walks back in in a minute. And to make it look even more appealing, the food that our, when they were young, younger children could have was on the lower shelf and it still actually is. It still is. It's there because it, it looks like, well, we feed our children. It looks that way, right, Ruby? I mean, stand up, Ruby, just for a moment. Look how skinny this girl is. Thank you. Let me breathe in for a minute. Look how skinny I am. For a... So on the bottom shelf is food that, as little children, Ruby could get. It's the dried fruit. It's the non-sugary stuff. And then the next shelf up they couldn't reach is the caramel koalas that Kim, sorry, Ruby and I don't eat. And then, then there's the, the cooking ingredients up here, which, you know, obviously you don't want kids getting. But that's the kind of stuff that makes the really nice food. And now I say that because what I want to do is this morning give you a pantry with a similar layout in a spiritual sense. I want those who perhaps are going to go redemption. That's no, not a word I'm really familiar with. And I'm going to go, well, let me show you what's on the lower shelf. And that's not meant to sound condescending. It's not meant to be arrogant or anything like that. It's meant to say, I really want to help you to get a first level understanding of what this word means. And, and redemption simply means uh, to rescue. It means to cancel a debt. 
It means to undo damage that's been done. In a very literal sense, this word in the New Testament was adopted from a word used in the slave trade. Literally. And you may be aware that the word Christian, wherever you have a word chun on the end of it, means slave of. So in Acts 11, when the first Christians were called, or followers of Jesus were called Christians, it literally meant slaves of Jesus Christ. And Antioch was a slave trading city centre. It was, that was their, one of their main sources of enterprise, slave trade. So Christian, when we say I'm a Christian, we are literally saying I am a slave of Jesus Christ. But it's actually richer than that if you can see that that now is a rich thing because when you bought a slave from the slave market, the Greek word used for that transaction is the word that's translated in the New Testament as redeem. To redeem. So when we say we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ... It's that same language, that same word. It means we were enslaved. We were due to be sold to a cruel taskmaster, Satan. And Jesus Christ came into the slave market, saw us, and with everything he's got, and he's got a lot, he decided to buy you. And so that word Christian really means one who is redeemed from slavery and is now someone who belongs, slavery term, to Christ. And so there was a saying that the old timers had when I was growing up and as a teenager in a Pentecostal church where you would hear sometimes they would say this and it almost break out into a chant as they said it together that no one is so free as he who is a slave of Christ. And it's a beautiful thought but it's a picture of redemption. So redemption in that sense really means you've been freed from slavery. That's redemption. So this is, if you can get this, and I hope we can go up a couple of shelves as well, but I hope that you get this, that that's what redemption means. And as I introduced last week, the temptation we have is that we think of redemption as something that happened back then when we got saved. And that's all redemption has, to, that's the only place where it intersects with our life. And I hoped to show last week as I interviewed Michael that that's not where redemption only intersects our life. But you will see, if we could map out with perhaps colourful lines and do, do, a, do a line, this is our life, we start, we're born and we go through to whatever age we, we get and here's the years that go by. Redemption would be that red line that goes through, phew, there, that's, we're saved. Or maybe possibly we would see it, we're actually rescued back here even before we're saved. There's that red line that comes through and then you get yourself into a mess because this is life, welcome to life. And you'll find God's redemption in the sex again and rescues you. Then you'll find it just goes like this. And I confessed to you my, my life prayer. It's two words, sometimes three, 
but it's a continual prayer for redemption and it sounds like this. God, help. Sometimes it sounds like this. Help me. And it's my continual cry for redemption because I just seem to have a propensity for getting myself in a mess. And so I need God's redemption all the time. So if you have this concept that becoming a Christian was the, you know, tick that box, now I'm going to move on and, you know, what else is there in life? Take that one back to the shop. Get your money back because that's not it. That's not the real deal. And so what we discover, and we discover it in the earliest pages of Scripture, is that God's rescue plan, that is redemption, God's rescue plan of redemption, is one which intersects our life when we cry out to God for it. And I hope to show you this in a moment. I'm going to pose some questions for you. So I need you to get ready for some questions I want you to think about. And I'm sorry if you didn't think you were going to come to church and have to think. Um, I'm going to hurt your head in a minute. I'm going to hurt your brains. It'll hurt your minds, really. It won't hurt your brains. It'll hurt your mind. So we see at the end of... Genesis, the opening book of the Bible, we see the the greatest illustration in the Old Testament of redemption. And that wasn't Israel coming out of Egypt, that was Joseph being imprisoned. And here we have the need for redemption because Joseph is in prison. And this is the point that hopefully we heard last week, that sometimes life gets really bad, really bad. And and stuff happens and it's, and it's like, man, it could be cancer. And you think, oh, I didn't schedule this. This wasn't in the diary. This wasn't in my life plan. And stuff happens. It could be any number of things. It could be a spouse who, as I had someone come up to me after one of the services last weekend, say, after... X number of years I came home and my spouse has left. Didn't see it coming, didn't know it was coming and their world's just turned upside down. These are the times when we really need redemption and the question we might have, can God get me out of this? I mean, I know he's great, but but is he that great? And that's why I want to look at some of these examples and show you that really the subtitle here is, if you can see this, when God transforms impossibly bad into unimaginably good. And there's a Hebrew word I will occasionally mention because it's a word untranslatable into English because we just don't have a word for it because there is no human whom it befits. And it's the word chesed. Chesed, and it's translated into English in 169 different ways. Because translators go, what the heck does that mean? How do we, and they know what it means, they just don't have one English word for it. And so one of the early English translators invented a word for it. He invented the word loving kindness. He said, and someone said, that's not a word. He said, well, it is now. And and now we read our English Bibles and and most of the English translators have said, yeah, let's use that word. Loving kindness. And it simply means this. The God of limitless wealth has put it all on the line and given it away to redeem you. It's it's just unimaginable that he would do this. 
And it's all through the Psalms how the psalmist, the very psalmist, had an experience with God and they just chesed, chesed, you are the God, Yahweh chesed, you are the God who, in the English, is all loving kindness and I can't comprehend why and how you've done it, but I know you have. And that's often a way we have to approach our spiritual lives with God. It's the difference between apprehension, we're going up a shelf now, apprehension, and comprehension and as little children we always want to understand something and sometimes you just can't and maybe we're all actually little children we just need to apprehend I don't understand it but I can see it and I get it it's there it's like I still don't understand it I don't understand why God would love me after all I've done to him but I'm experiencing his love and it blows my mind I just don't get it all right, I want to pose some questions for you and I want you to consider this, these questions. I've got about three or four questions for you. Here's the first question. How different would your life be if you got to spend 24 hours in heaven with God? I want you to ponder that. And I want someone to offer me a, an idea of how you think your life might be different if... You were taken from this dimension and planet for 24 hours and you got to be with God right beside his throne watching how he ran the universe for 24 hours. Gordon, what was your offering? I heard you say something. (laughs) Thanks, Andrew. (laughs) Instead of me being at a moment in time and a moment in space like I am now, I'd actually, for the first time, experience eternity. Eternity, yeah. And I think that would just completely blow my mind because I'm used to being... Okay, so you, 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 you recognise it would be 24 hours Earth dimension time, but you would not know what time it was with God. Would that change your perspective when you came back after the 24 hours of Earth time? Totally. To, how? Because you've, you've experienced something that's so much bigger and grander than you are. You've experienced so, something so much bigger and grander, yep. Okay, the billion times, billion times grander vision of God than you had. Anyone else got a contribution to make? It would be forever. She wants to stay forever. You want to stay forever? Why? Why would you want to come back to this? <laughs> Anyone else? How would it change your perspective? Heidi. You would experience total worship for the first time. That is a great point. You wouldn't think about you. You would suddenly see God for who he was and you would, you would be completely encapsulated in him. You would you'd worship for the first time. That is a profound point, Heidi, because who thinks of, you know, it's, it's kind of like asking, how would you feel walking into the CEO of BHP? Well, it's not like that. Not like that at all. The world's biggest company, or, or General Electric, the world's biggest company. Uh, what do they trade? A billion dollars a week in turnover or something. It's not like that. You know, I can imagine the office of the CEO of General Electric, the world's largest company, is probably a pretty intense place. But that's, that wouldn't be your experience standing beside the God who controls the universe. Here's the next question. How would your perspective of life, troubles, and any opposition that you're currently facing undergo change if you had that 24 hours in God's very presence? 
You would come back to earth and you would trust trust God like never before. You'd probably think, what problems? You're picking on me? You? You don't know whose side I'm on, do you? Okay, here's the next question. How surprised would you be at how seriously God listened to and answered the prayers of his people? How much of your time in heaven would you notice he's listening? C.S. Lewis said this, he was in, during World War II, he was put on the BBC to give talks about God and Christianity. It was called Mere Christianity. And he said, you may wonder how God can hear the prayers of so many billions of people at the time, even then in the 1940s, how he can hear the prayers of everyone at once. And he said, that's because God is outside our time. And in his dimension, as Gordon alluded to before, in his dimension of eternity, he has eternity to spend with you, even now, right now, begins now. And so he can spend eternity with you, he can spend eternity with me. He can spend his, understand, his ability to hear every prayer prayed at the time, in the moment, by every person is undaunted. Now, if you saw that, you got a glimpse of that in that dimension of eternity. And then you came back to earth. How would it affect the way you prayed? How shocked would you be at how forgiving, kind, loving, and relentless in that God is. To see people, you get a glimpse from God's perspective of people who are so angry at him, so opposed to him, so persistent in trying to undermine everything he's about, And yet, he says, watch this. And he orchestrates events in their life. And they drop to their knees and cry out to him for forgiveness. And he grants it. But he doesn't just grant it. He doesn't just forgive and forget and say, you step over that line one more time, fella, look out. It's not that. He says this. Here's the keys to my car, the keys to my house, the combination to my safe. (laughs) I forgive you and I give you all this. It's yours now. Come on in. What would that do to you? Because whatever glimpse you get in that moment, you are beginning, 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 lower shelf to beginning to appreciate redemption. Redemption. And so I'm going to launch into this and hopefully make this even more clear to you because I'm going to tell you the story of someone to whom each of those three questions were what they literally confronted. And this second part, I can only think as I was pondering this, people are going to think what I'm describing about God is ridiculous It's lavish, not a word that people might necessarily associate with God. It's excessive and it is literally scandalous, which is a Greek word from which we often in English translate into English as 
offensive. And Jesus told the story of a man who hired workers at the start of the day to go into his vineyard and work. Remember the story? And they were working in the heat of that Mediterranean sun and they weren't getting the harvest in. And if you're a farmer who's got a harvest to get in, you've got to get it in and you've got to get it in before the end of day. Otherwise, you'll lose the lot. And so he went at midday and he hired more workers. They came in, they joined in the work and they're working flat out in the high sun of the Mediterranean heat of that day and then by three o'clock that afternoon they still hadn't harvested everything and so he goes into the marketplace and he sees men lying around loafers good for nothing says want a job yes come on come and help and they work that last two hours in the relatively cool of that day and then it comes time to being paid and He pays the last people who just put in a couple of hours a full day's wage. Remember that? The full day's wage. And these people who've been working at the whole day, now sunburnt, sweaty, smelling like blokes, (laughs) which is not pleasant, (laughs) said, oh, cool. He's upped the ante. He's giving them that. And that was only two hours. Let's see, we worked four times. We'll get four times as much. Be the thinking. And he gives the people who worked in the middle of the day the same. And then he comes to the ones who work in the heat of the day and he gives them exactly the same. And you know what he did up this end? He was ridiculous. He was lavish. He was excessive. And he was scandalous because scandalous comes from that word, Greek word scandalon, which means to take offense. And these people were offended. At his excessive, lavish, ridiculous generosity. And Jesus says, but it's his to do with whatever. And you agree to this. What's the problem? And it's an illustration of how God's forgiveness is for us who are saved at the cool of the day bit. We haven't been slogging away. And it's just excessive. It's ridiculous what God's done for us. It's just unbelievably excessive. And we're the beneficiaries of it. Mate, so here's the, here's the thing. You actually don't have to go into heaven to be in God's presence. Oh, I tell you, there, there are times when I'm in church, literally in church, and I just, I just say, I'm, I'm just going to switch and forget about everything. And I'm doing life like you. I've got bills to pay. I've got stuff happening. I've got problems. I've got stuff And it's a conscious decision that says, let's just come into God's presence right now. You you can do whatever you want, but I'm I'm just here. You can just sing the songs and mouth them, or you can use them as a means to worship. And you worship, and you come into the presence of God, as is described in Revelation chapter 4, where his very presence is surrounded by A sea of water so smooth, it's like glass. And there is no finer picture of the peace that surrounds God's presence. And that's what you would spend your 24 hours in, based on those questions before. So to come into God's presence, you don't have to go to heaven, but you do have to be redeemed. God does not have unredeemed people come into his presence 
Can you imagine spending all eternity in his presence, redeemed? Keys to the car, keys to the house, combination to the safe. Anything you want, put it on his tab. It's all yours for eternity. It's not about heaven, it's about him. The closing book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you might want to go to the last book of the Bible. It's page 1028, if you've got my Bible. Is about a redeemed man who went to heaven and spent time in God's presence and experienced the very three things that I've just mentioned. You might be here going, oh yeah, well I'm glad you oh yeah because here we go. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10 starts off like this. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And if you know anything about Turkey, where this is, these churches, these places are, they're still there today, it's actually a, a trade route. That's, and it's in order of the trade route. These seven churches. And here's the amazing thing. The Apostle John was the one who lent on the breast of Christ at the Last Supper. He's the one and the only one who went into the trial where Jesus was standing before the high priest. He tells us in his gospel that he was known by the high priest. And he tells us that his connections got him in. He's the only disciple who went in and saw Caiaphas saying, So you claim to be the Son of God? And he heard Jesus say, Not only that, I'm telling you, as Jesus was standing before Caius, with Caiaphas supposedly as his judge, Jesus says, and I tell you, the next time you see me, you will see me coming from the right hand of the power almighty on the clouds of heaven to judge. And Caiaphas ripped open his vest, his robes, and John would have seen all this. He saw that, he saw Jesus standing tall. Blood dripping from his face, crown of thorns shoved into the, the point where the skull and the flesh ended. And he saw Jesus dignified, standing tall in front of Caiaphas. Not being rude, not retaliating, not being nasty, not being anything other than who he actually was. And this John was the only of the 12 disciples, one went out and committed suicide, but he was the only one of the 11 left who followed Christ, the Via Dolorosa. He followed Christ to Golgotha. He was there when they nailed him to that cross. He was there when they hoisted that cross up. He was there. That's why he's called the beloved disciple, the one who truly loved Christ right to the end. Christ asked Peter in John chapter 21, do you love me? Three times he asked, but he never had to ask John. Because at the cross, Jesus says to John, John, look after my mother Mary. Look after her. She's now your mother. Mary, this is now your son. And the interesting thing is the first church mentioned here, Ephesus, is where John saw out the last of his days. And I was actually told by Stuart Robinson, who will be our guest at Easter, that he went to Ephesus not that long ago. And there's a monument there to the house where Mary and John lived 
in Ephesus. So he was close. Now I'm only saying that to say he really, of all the disciples, he really knew Jesus. He really knew him. So notice this. This is to me one of the most profound verses probably in the Bible it says this and I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me see you'd think he would know who was talking to him because it was Jesus he turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man quoting from Daniel clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest and all of this is symbolic The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. No wonder he didn't recognize the voice. But whom he is now encountering is is the glorified Jesus. And John records in John 17, Jesus in that garden of Gethsemane praying, Father, give me back my glory. That's all we have time for tonight. To order a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please visit our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select Redemption Part 2 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, time in God's presence positively changes our perspective. God's love for those He redeems is lavish, ridiculous, and scandalous. The prayers of the redeemed are heard, beautiful, and influential and God is able to redeem the most unlikely and undeserving. More from Dr. Corbett next week with part three of the Redemption series. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.